Kevin, so great to have you today. I just gave a quick intro on you, but I'd love to get your story of how you got to the position you are in today. Simba, really appreciate the opportunity to be here. I run the research group here at Eckerson Group. We're a boutique research and consulting firm focused on data analytics. I came from the vendor side, among other things. I was with EMC for about 10 years. During that time, I ran an analytics services team with EMC Pivotal. Then I was a client of Wayne Eckerson for a number of years when I was with a data integration vendor called Attunity, which got acquired by Click. Really enjoyed reading Wayne Eckerson's reports. We're both folks that love the written word and love to simplify complex technology and teach it to business people. And that's fundamentally what I love about what I do now, looking at bleeding edge opportunities, trying to translate that to IT team leaders and business leaders, help them understand what it means to them so that we're technically deep, but we're also helping folks understand the high level. So that's a little bit about what makes me tick circuitous route, but I really enjoy where I landed here about three and a half years ago. When we think of enterprises, I'm curious to understand or get your take on, you know, everyone's talking about AI and ML. What makes it specifically hard for an enterprise? There's a lot of things, but I'd love to kind of get your take on the pillars that specifically make it hard to get to the bleeding edge in AI and ML if you are a large enterprise. Great question. I think that there are a few elements that make this stuff hard. One is that, as I mentioned, we have two sides of the house here at Eckerson Group. We have research where we're working with innovative companies to talk about the very latest bleeding edge tools and opportunities. And then we've got consulting and we notice about a five to seven year gap between what cutting edge vendors are talking about and what the average traditional enterprise, meaning an enterprise born before the cloud boom, say before 2010, what they're actually doing. And so there are a lot of stubborn, hard problems that have persisted for a long time. They're not sexy. They're not as interesting to talk about on a keynote stage, but they boil down to silos, fiefdoms, a lot of technical debt. You've got this long tail of old stuff that because of data gravity, sovereignty requirements, migration complexity and cost, you're not going to be able to move it to the cloud. So that's one thing. You've got these hybrid complex environments. Another is that you have folks that have built up a fair amount of habits within a certain business unit that's different from the rest of the organization. And it's hard to reconcile that. It's hard to retrain people. There's also process. Process can get ingrained. So struggling with that technical debt related to people and process and technology, I think is the fundamental thing that makes any new technology initiative hard. And that's certainly true with the AIML, because you can take very cutting edge tools and you can empower a smaller business unit to do some great things. Fantastic. But you want to think of the second order implications in terms of getting something just slightly wrong on a fraud prevention ML algorithm could have some pretty serious downstream implications. You want to think about making certain decisions in terms of data governance for one business unit and how that actually might cascade to or create tougher regulatory compliance processes for the rest of the business. So I think in a nutshell, it's really dealing with history. It's the fact that you don't have a fresh start if you're a company that was born before the cloud came around. I love that split you had of the people, process, and technologies. We sometimes ourselves, even when we're selling, we'll say like organizational problems and technology problems, and we kind of create that distinction. One, like are all these things 
how deeply tied are they? And when you think about like, let's say the weights of those problems, like if I'm like, hey, I can focus on getting new technologies in, or I can focus on kind of process. Is there one you could focus on? Is it even possible to focus on one of them? I think that it helps to start with the people and make sure that you have the right people and that you're educating and motivating them in the right way to make sure that they can take advantage of the latest technology and that they can adapt their process. So if you start with the people, you can address, I'd say, more than a third of the problem, half or more of the problem related to taking advantage of new technology opportunities. Then it's time to go to process and figure out, okay, what needs to change? And then you go to technology and say, what are the very latest tools that can help us achieve the business objectives that we have filtering down to IT from executive leadership? That's one way to look at it. There is a tendency, of course, because we're technology people and we get excited about, rightfully, new stuff, to start with the technology and start with the latest bells and whistles, start with advanced algorithms that can predict customer actions, recommend customer purchases, prevent fraud, do all sorts of things, predict prices and personalize content on the web. Those are very exciting bells and whistles, and those are pretty powerful algorithms that are now available off the shelf from a lot of public libraries. The bigger question is, do you have the right data to feed that? And do you have the right people and process to support it? You mentioned like you're kind of almost fighting against your company's build up a debt. And when I'm in a situation, in one hand, I see the explosion of innovation coming from AI and ML. And there's so many almost obvious use cases to empower the business. At the same time, I'm kind of dragging along potentially even like hundreds of years of like debt, both technical, disorganizational, et cetera, trying to make this happen. What's, I guess, the pattern you've seen work? How to bring innovation to a large organization that's, let's say, fighting against a lot of technical debt that exists? What works, I think, is starting with something that is bite-sized. Start with a problem that is demonstrable. Find a group that's in pain. And then spin up a tiger team, a group of innovative, forward-thinking folks who have fewer dependencies process-wise on the rest of the business and see what they can cook up. So it might be that you've got a website or part of your website focused on a new customer segment or a new offering, and you're less tied down to the rest of the business. You can create some pretty cool content personalization algorithms or customer recommendation algorithms. If you can start to innovate in a modular way, and if you can demonstrate some quick success to the rest of the business, that can create confidence. It can give you a learning curve. It can help you demonstrate business results to the rest of the business and get the right political support, the right momentum to go broader and start to roll out some of the things you learned in terms of people, process, and technology to the rest of the business. So I think starting small, looking for a quick win, those are common, almost cliche phrases, but they're very appropriate here because we all have a tendency to fixate on the very latest cutting-edge tools. Rightfully, there's some really incredible, powerful stuff out there, but looking for a quick win is a good way to get started to make sure you don't take on too much at the outset. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's almost this idea of creating momentum and building off of that momentum to kind of get where you need to get. Just because there's always going to be roadblocks, there's always going to be hurdles, there's always going to be some level of organizational debt to just like fight your way through. So the more momentum you have, the easier it is, I guess, to just push through all that. One piece of the equation 
which I know comes up a ton, is the data. The data is almost in some way like a projection of lots of its debt that gets created. I guess, well, first broadly, if you're working ML or AI, it kind of all starts with the data. If you don't have good data, there's not really much you can do. What are the common, I guess, pain points and pillars that you see around the data part of the ML AI process? I'll start by agreeing with you wholeheartedly that data is 90% of the problem and 90% of the opportunity because even with the very latest large language models, you look at what Databricks said when they came out with Dolly. They said, you know what? We can take older, more rudimentary models, but if we apply it to a relatively small but clean set of inputs, we can generate some pretty stunning results. So it just shows that all the innovation and algorithms, that's not the big problem right now. The big problem is the data. And so if you look at the data, there are some fundamental recurring themes here. There are silos. If you look at structured data, we'll start with that. There are siloed, sometimes conflicting or disparate views of entities such as customers, such as suppliers, such as employees. So there's a need for basic master data management there. There's a need for consolidation or at least reconciliation so that you have one version of the truth wherever possible as opposed to multiple. There's also a need to look at unstructured data and figure out how to enrich your insights on business opportunities, on entities and so forth by extracting insights from the unstructured data and commingling it with the structured data. So I think those are some fundamental issues related to, broadly speaking, data quality that persist time and time again. So the notion of data-centric AI, I think really makes sense because philosophically it starts to really get at that problem of making sure that you have clean, well-organized input. Labeling of inputs goes a long way as well. I totally agree. I mean, data-centric AI is really the only kind. I almost feel like that's all we do. Everything is more about making the data usable. And the models are getting to the point where we're almost becoming just straight-up APIs. So it's more about orchestrating the data, moving the data, getting to the right data, cleaning it up, et cetera, much more so than having the most cutting-edge model, which almost feels like it's being commoditized. On the data side, I noticed almost two trends that in a funny way almost like seem to counteract each other. One is this huge kind of centralization of data. Let's get all of our data into this data lake. At the same time, I'm seeing this concept, it's like loosely data mesh, but it's very much this idea of, hey, like all these teams are maintaining their own databases, which allows them to move faster, allows them to iterate faster. And then the goal kind of becomes unifying an abstraction or almost like an interface or a protocol over the desperate data sets. Is that fair? Do you see that too? And do you see those things like fundamentally, I guess, rubbing against each other or can they both exist in the same organization? Really good question. And it gets to a lot of the conversations we have within our research team here. There is definitely a pendulum effect over time. If we look at the rush to the cloud during, say, 2015 to 2020, there was a desire to consolidate onto a cloud data lake or a cloud data warehouse. And now the notion of a combined, whatever we want to call it, the lake house certainly works, this common pattern of SQL on top of object stores. So there was a desire to consolidate as much as you can of analytical data in one repository. But the reality is that data consolidation, I want to say it failed. We still have very decentralized data sets. And the reason is that there's the long tail of old stuff 
that because of data gravity, inertia, what have you, is going to stay, it might be a fraction of what you have, but it's going to stay in mainframe, on-premise, older stuff. It's going to be there for a while. You've also got the desire to, most companies now work with multiple cloud service providers. They're trying to optimize certain workloads on one cloud versus another, maybe gain some pricing leverage, maybe take advantage of certain offerings in certain regions. So that multi-cloud trend is continuing. So there are things that limit what you can really achieve with data consolidation. And that recognition of data decentralization is part of what has created this enthusiasm about the notion of a data mesh. Because now you can say, it's okay that we have these islands of data. Let's start to empower people out in the business units to own and provide it to the rest of the business. But I think the shift now is people say, okay, that's fine. If we accept that data is decentralized somewhat, we need to have a common semantic layer, a common management plane on top. That's where you see, I think, some more investment now in order to figure out how to manage things across decentralized environments in somewhat of a uniform way. I mean, I totally agree. I think that's what we've seen. We've even kind of structured our own product. We call it like the virtual feature store, just because it's almost like what would happen if you could virtualize this application layer without having to forcibly centralize the data? And we've seen a lot of the uptake comes from companies that are on-prem and in cloud where it just doesn't make sense. It's just not possible, especially when you're dealing with really sensitive data, the work you have to do to get that and kind of lift it off of your mainframe onto wherever is just enormous. I want to talk a bit about that too, because there's also this component of regulatory risk and governance and all the components that kind of come around that aspect. I guess first, I'd love to just get almost your lay of the land. Like if you are a large organization, enterprise, you have financial data, you have a variety of different user data. What is that like? What regulations like come up a ton? What sort of things should people in those positions be thinking about as they're working with this data? So the regulatory environment continues to evolve. I think there's some pretty common patterns. So if you're a global organization, you've been dealing with GDPR in the European Union for some time now. And that's going to force you to make sure that you're only taking actions with customer data that they have explicitly authorized. The strong corollary to that is the California Consumer Privacy Act, the CCPA. We've got several other state versions cropping up in the United States that are similar. And broadly speaking, they have the same principles. If you get down to the regulatory fine print, it is hard for companies now because they got to figure out, okay, I'm complying with CCPA. Does that mean I've got it licked for all of the United States? Does that mean I'm okay with GDPR? I was at an event in January with the CEO of LL Bean, and he was lamenting the fact that they had to have multiple compliance teams solving multiple compliance requirements. He said, why don't we get a universal standard here? At least for the United States, globally would be great. So the first trend is that consumer privacy trend making sure that you're only taking authorized actions with data. And that applies to both business intelligence and new analytics workloads, such as data science. So that's one broad set of activities that's important. The next one is figuring out, okay, what are we going to do with artificial intelligence? Because now we need to make sure that we have some visibility. We need to get past the black box problem to understand we actually know what actions we're taking with the customer data. And then we can explain it to people. So the European Union, has some draft legislation looking at data science, looking at 
artificial intelligence. It'll take a while for that kind of thing to shape up. But I think that what companies are taking a much harder look at are more basic questions. This explosion of interest in large language models since ChatGPT came onto the scene in November has, I think, stunned the world and stunned enterprises who look at their teams, including, according to our surveys, nearly half of data engineers are already using ChatGPT to help them do their jobs. And they're starting to say, whoa, <laughs> great. If you can get some productivity, then it's fantastic. But this is also the Wild West because with ungoverned inputs, you're going to get ungoverned outputs. And it creates a lot of risk from a compliance perspective, from an accuracy perspective. So I think the next wave of innovation is going to focus on AIML governance and looking at some basic questions, which is, do I know why this algorithm told me to do something? And do I trust it? Those are easy questions to ask, very hard questions to answer. And I think there's going to be a lot of focus on it from companies and from vendors. When we work with certain types of companies, I find that a lot of problems around governance is handled via essentially meetings, committees, like before I get a feature in production, I need to talk to this team and this team, et cetera. You mentioned there's obvious productivity gains, there's obvious business opportunities that you can take advantage of if you are using this new technology. I guess first, what's to save the world now? Like how is governance in practice actually being applied at these enterprises? One. And then two, I'd love to get a sense of, I guess, the utopia state. What should it look like? What would be like, in theory, like the best way that this would look in the future? I think, broadly speaking, the companies that we work with, there are some very common trends across companies. One is to get much more serious about cataloging their data and assembling the right metadata of all their different data sets throughout the organization. It's hard to do, like everything, easier said than done. That's one effort that's underway. Another is to modernize and move as much as you can onto a common cloud-based repository for analytics. So cataloging, cloud consolidation are big trends. Now, there's also a desire now to invest quite a bit in training, in fostering best practices. So there's a focus on data literacy. There's also a focus on enabling companies and making sure that you're at the grassroots level, the people in your organization who are starting to use ChatGPT or BARD or Bloom, whatever it is, if they're starting to use those tools, they're doing so in consistent ways that they've been trained on some easy to understand guidelines about what's in bounds, what's out of bounds. And we find that companies that create a center of excellence to help foster consistent best practices for using both new and established technologies is the right way to get that going. So those are some of the big trends that we see in terms of getting your arms around this governance problem. Yeah, it's funny. It kind of comes back to your same people process technology, the part that it almost feels like skipped upon because it's not as sexy. It's kind of like the people part. Like, how do we get people in our or even if we don't necessarily have this perfect technology, how can we get it to a point where people just get it? You know, they're well trained. They understand like how we think about things and they can make the right decision, even given the mix of ambiguity that exists. Did you buy that? Is that fair before we think about it? Yeah, I think that we're all still a little bit in shock about the capabilities. And I keep going back to large language models, but it's forced us to ask some hard questions about AI overall. 
We're all still in shock about how powerful it is, but I think that's starting to settle down. And some of the common patterns that are starting to emerge is that vendors and companies are going to create smaller language models, small LLMs that have curated governed inputs, and they're solving small tactical focus problems. So it's not a big wild west, rather it's something that a company working closely with a vendor can make sure they're solving in a governed way. So I think things will settle down on that front. It's going to take some time and it'll probably take some missteps by a lot of companies in the meantime as well. Yeah, I have a deck that has a slide where I define an SLM, a small language model. There you go. You beat me to it. I was thinking of coining the term. I'm sure it's appearing (laughs) right on board with you. Yeah, I was joking. I'm like, well, if GPT is an LLM, does that make BERT like an SLM? And just kind of maybe like starting to string together, I guess, the traditional ML and I guess the more AI focus, like kind of the new wave, the new paradigms that are emerging the last six months to a year. I'm curious to ask about that. Like in the enterprise, you know, we're seeing GPT provide this new paradigm. Like the idea of a prompt, like as a data scientist, like it wasn't really a concept before. The idea of thinking about your prompt, constructing prompts, like that was never something we'd ever think about just because the models just worked very differently. Now, if I am a team and there's a lot of companies that have chatbots, they have chatbot teams. The chatbot teams were working in, let's call it more traditional methods of NLP. Is ChatGPT going to wipe out a lot of traditional ML use cases? Is everything going to kind of get replaced with GPT or similar LLMs? How do you think about that? And where is the lines and distinctions between where it makes sense and where it doesn't make sense? So my guess is that there will be a profound transformation, but it'll take time to really shake out, and the implications are hard to predict right now. GPT got there first, but also had some of the most interesting examples of ungoverned outputs. I don't know that they're necessarily going to win the war. Google's doing quite a bit, and Google, I think, has a very high interest in making sure that these are governed inputs and outputs. So I think that what's more likely to happen is that you will have small SLMs, small language models in governed rollouts using commercial technology from vendors, using homegrown stuff from open source communities or a mixture thereof, where companies start to roll out much more focused language models. And that'll probably become the norm because people have higher confidence in it than at least the current versions of ChatGPT. Yeah, it's really interesting. It makes a ton of sense. I've actually not heard this take as strongly. And I think it's very much in my head, like it's the most clear path forward for an enterprise. Like If you're a large bank, figuring out how to make LLMs work is a lot harder than trying to figure out how to make an SLM work. I want to come back to like the COEs. Obviously, a lot of large enterprises have COEs, and I've seen many different ways of trying to implement them. I'm curious from your perspective, like what makes a center of excellence successful? Like how can you successfully show and nurture these best practices across a large org? Like if you think SLM is the way, how do you build a team that really can show that one and to like disseminate it into the rest of the organization? Great question, because it's real easy to spin up something that's cross-functionally that involves dotted lines and voluntary time on top of a day job, and it just goes away into the ether after a few months. But if you start by saying, okay, we need executive buy-in and we need executive commitment of dedicated time at the top to actually foster this community center of excellence, and then we need within the 
different business units and different IT organizations, line managers that are told your people are going to dedicate X percent of time to this. Then you've created enough time, enough motivation and buy-in that people will give it the calories it needs. And you need to balance, as with everything, this need for centralization and control with a need for innovation and decentralization. And so start with broad brush guiding principles and start to boil down to specific policies and best practices and find people at the individual contributor level or the team manager level who are having success, putting those guidelines to work. Celebrate that success, help them share those best practices with their peers and start to foster a community where people have a vested interest in learning from one another because ultimately they're now helping one another be more productive in their day jobs. I think those are some of the common practices that we see. What's interesting about it is that none of it is distinct to AIML or to other specific technologies. Rather, this is the art of human management that is always evasive. There are some timeless principles that are still hard to master. Yeah, I love how you frame it. It's almost like making innovation a process to something that you do. Yeah. I still have so many questions. I feel like we could continue talking about this all day. I would love, I guess, just to leave off for someone who wants to follow you, follow your research. You write, I know you write a lot and share a lot of work about this. Where should they look for you? I am on LinkedIn quite a bit. I post each day and love to engage community members there. I find that some of our best research comes from people that we find on LinkedIn through polls, through messaging and so forth. So encourage folks to look for me on LinkedIn. If you think I'm wrong with something I say, tell me, let's engage. 